Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 25th, 2022. Um, and of course, the newspapers today are completely dominated by one issue, the uh, decision of the Supreme Court to abolish Roe versus Wade. New York Times reports that um, access to abortion plummets, which of course means that uh, there are going to be more babies, more parents, more mothers, lots of discussion about mothers, less discussion about fathers, but also more fathers. The New York, uh, the Financial Times, usually an economic newspaper, also leads with this. Lots of uh, angry women demonstrating, some men, but mostly women. Uh, the abortion battle, according to the FT, shifts to the U.S. Congress and the midterm elections. It looks like uh, there's going to be a referendum on all this in the United States. Um, and according to the Wall Street Journal, which probably is sympathetic to the court decision, um, this push to overturn Roe Ro versus Wade was 50 years in the making. It's a deeply political issue. It's interesting that all this came a few days after uh, June 19th, Father's Day in the United States. Um, according to Wikipedia, Father's Day is an holiday of honoring fatherhood and paternal bonds, although uh, one wonders, particularly in the case of abortion, how uh, involved fathers always are. Lots of images of uh, fathers, of happy fathers, of sentimentalized, saccharine versions of relationships between daughters and fathers. Um, there's a wonderful one on the Wikipedia page of Father's Day, a painting by the appropriately named uh, 17th century Dutch artist Josephus Laurentius uh, Dickmans uh, of a, a young girl standing in front of her supposed father, I guess, waiting for paternal advice. Um, as they said, uh, Dickmans was uh, uh, a 17th century uh, Dutch painter, actually a Belgian painter from um, Antwerp. Not everyone, of course, uh, views the relationship between fathers and daughters with such sentimentality, such uh, a clear sense of intellectual hierarchy. My guest today on the show certainly doesn't. Uh, Catherine Angel has uh, a book out, Daddy Issues, Love and Hate in the Time of Patriarchy. Uh, Catherine is joining us from London. Uh, Catherine, welcome. Uh, before we start, what, what is your take, particularly from the point of view of daddy issues and the issues you bring up in your book about the Supreme Court decision or quote-unquote reading of what's happening in the United States? Well, I think it's really devastating news for anyone in the U.S. It will lead to such unnecessary pain and um, death. And I think it's, you know, when we use the word father as a verb, we use it very differently from how we use the word mother as a verb. So, you know, to father a child is just to bring a child into existence, whereas to mother a child means something entirely different and much more ongoing. And obviously there are lots of fathers who, who look after their children and who are, who are present as fathers. But, the, you know, those different usages of those verbs, I think, 
tells us something really profound about what we expect of men and women in relation to parenting. But the thing that, you know, really kind of sticks in, in my throat in relation to the abortion situation is just the question of autonomy. Um, and this comes up in daddy issues, and, you know, we can talk about that in a minute, but people can have wildly differing experiences of abortion. And I think sometimes the, the conversation tends to focus on, um, you know, whether abortion is a kind of distressing experience for women or whether it's they were happy about their abortions. And, and some of the activism around um, abortion focuses on this, focuses on how women feel about it. You know, I loved my abortion. I think how women feel about abortion, about the experiences of their own abortions is really actually beside the point. The point is that women should have the right to exercise autonomy over their bodies. And of course, in exercising that autonomy, we can have all kinds of experiences. Those experiences are not what's at stake. What's at stake is the right to exercise autonomy over our lives. What's your reading of uh, the conservative majority, minority, depending how you look at it, in, in their thinking about it, this image of a man talking to a woman on the front page of the Wall Street Journal perhaps sums it up. Um, when it comes to abortion and, and, and men, uh, and particularly the fact that there are a majority, I think, of men in the anti-abortion camp, there are, of course, some women. Uh, it's probably I, I'm not sure what the situation is in the UK, but in the US, men have a some men at least have a, quite a uh, an outspoken view on abortion. Do men have a right to have an opinion on abortion? Do you think? Well, I think, of course, they have a right to have an opinion on abortion. But um, you know, I think the question. I mean, there are all sorts of political questions about, you know, how how U.S. politics works that I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on. But I think, you know, really what's important for us to think about is what what's happening in the desire to restrict access to abortion. And I think that part of it is, you know, a very profound cultural um, fear of female sexuality. It is about sexuality. It's about restricting the possibility for women to um, experience sexual pleasure and not be punished for it, because I think that's that in a way is what's at stake. You know, sexual life is um, it does come with risks for women in terms of pregnancy, and um, and there is something I think so sadistic in tying women to that um, to that risk and not not giving them options. And I think. It does come down ultimately to a kind of horror of um, the generative potential of a woman's body, but also a woman's relationship to that generative potential. You know, if a woman is able to become pregnant, um, I mean, that in itself is quite extraordinary phenomenon. But to add to that the phenomenon that women might have their own desire to um to create or not create in relation to their reproductive potential. And that seems to drive people insane. And that's really, that's fascinating. You know, why, why is it so terrifying that women might be able to enjoy sexual life without then inevitably becoming a parent? And why is there something so punitive in the kind of increasing right-wing politics around women's bodies 
um, you know, to the extent that it's not it's not just about restricting access, it's about making it nigh on impossible for women to have access to abortion, even in the most difficult circumstances, you know, after abuse or rape or in, in life-threatening conditions for the woman herself. Why is there this urge to punish women for the bodies that they have and for the lives that they lead? Yeah, and that makes sense, I think, in terms of Clarence Thomas's view, apparently, that the next the next thing to topple will be contraception, which would make sense in terms of what you're saying. Uh, Catherine, you're, you're known as a writer on uh, female sexuality. Um, your one book uh, you had published uh, was uh, by Versa was Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again. You're also well known as the author of Unmastered, A Book of Desire. Um, this book, uh, this latest book, Daddy Issues, Love and Hate in the Time of Patriarchy, how much does it have to do with sex itself? Or are you focusing pretty much exclusively on relations between fathers and daughters? That's a good question, actually. I think they're very intermingled, those two issues for me. So the book is partly about um, a kind of absence from some of the conversations around me too, and, you know, abuses of power and, and, you know, power relations between men and women in particular, I began to feel that there was a strange absence of fathers in that conversation. Um, and I began to think about this phrase, daddy issues and how it, how it works. And I think, you know, if, if I can sort of sketch the argument in the book in a way, I would say that it's about how, um, we use this phrase, daddy issues, to acknowledge something about the power of the figure of the father in culture and in sexuality. Um, but we then sort of diagnose that dynamic purely in the woman herself. So we nod to the fact that, you know, a, a woman may um, be attracted to a man for reasons to do with her own father, to, for reasons to do with her own kind of, you know, coming into being as a person through infantile sexuality and through the relationship to caregivers and parents. But then we scorn that. So this phrase is always used very mockingly. And so I began to think about how this phrase acknowledges this thing that we find uncomfortable, which is to think about, you know, infantile sexuality, the development of sexuality and kind of Oedipal, you know, relations in the family but it acknowledges it and then it kind of throws contempt on the woman and it locates the problem of sexuality in women rather than in a relational dynamic or in a kind of social or cultural or political sphere. And that's, that's what I find really fascinating um, because I think that's something that really recurs in so many places in the culture. And, you know, you could think about that in relation to abortion as well. You know, sex happens between people and then somehow the responsibility for sex is located in, in the woman. Um, and I think that it's really, it's, I found it a useful lens to look at how fathers and daughters are represented in culture through which to think about our kind of fear of female sexuality and our desire to kind of control it and to only see it through the dynamics of men. I know you, uh, and I don't want to make this too much of an academic conversation, but obviously there's a strong Freudian element, at least in terms of this conversation. 
Uh, I know you've been also influenced by uh, British uh, psychoanalyst uh, Donald Winnicott. Where, where is the theory here, Catherine? Is, are you developing a school, a tradition? Do you think theory matters in this conversation? I don't know that I'm developing a school or, or a tradition. And I, and I know that in my, you know, in my writing, I take from a lot of different sources in probably quite um, maybe a magpie-like way. And, I'm, and, and I feel like I'm constantly trying to think through the, the work of thinkers I find interesting and, and useful. Um, but, I, but psychoanalysis is certainly a big part of how I think, and increasingly so, I think. I, I, I think that there is so much in, um, in both in Freud and then, you know, in, in, in various other thinkers in the kind of history of psychoanalysis that really pinpoints something that actually culturally we, we still try to kind of forget or disavow or, um, or turn away from because these things, these things are genuinely difficult and uncomfortable. And I think, you know, there's lots to criticize about Freud's theories of, you know, the Oedipus complex and, you know, his whole, his whole edifice of thought, but, but the, just the kind of simplicity and profundity of the idea that, you know, from the very beginning, we're in this kind of crucible of human relationships that are so close to sexuality. There's so much to do with um, desire and need and longing and attachment, but also, you know, just bodily gratification, that that crucible shapes so much of what we become. And I think that it's in a way it's such an obvious point, but I think it's really important to keep um, thinking about it, not least when it comes to thinking about misogyny and violence, um, because I do think that there are there are elements of culture, you know, where we see this kind of punitive um, approach to female sexuality, where I can't help but see a dynamic where, you know, some men are very intent on um, exacting some kind of revenge on women and the, you know, the woman who primarily is a mother, whether, whether their own mother or a kind of cultural figure of the mother. And I think that is a really useful, it's, you know, it's one of the tools we have to kind of understand the world that we're in, you know, what solutions it leads to, I'm not quite sure, but it is a tool. And then somebody like Winnicott, I think, was just such a, such a playful writer, such a playful practitioner, in as far as one can tell from his writings, um, who worked, you know, with children in a very kind of imaginative way. And I find I find his writings about um, the kind of tussle with within the child, but then you know the emerging adult between love and hate a really useful, actually sort of even personally quite useful way to think about um, human life. And I found it just a very interesting voice in my head as I was writing this, not least in relation to the question of writing and what it is to write about something culturally very fraught, which I seem to tend to do for some reason, but also, you know, to write about things that can really trigger ambivalence. Um, because you know this book, I mean, as you said in your intro, you know it's not it's not sentimentalizing about fathers. If anything, it's like committed to a slightly steely aggression and and critique. 
And um, I was interested in that as a dynamic, you know, what is it to, what is it to really hold and play with one's own aggression? And in Winnicottian terms, that that aggression is a necessary part of how the infant um, discovers who they are through through aggression towards the caregiver. And the role of the caregiver is to kind of withstand that aggression and be able to tolerate it so that the infant can experience themselves as a kind of separate being and the parent as a separate being. So in a way, I was thinking about the process of writing psychoanalytically and Winnicott, you know, was a really useful kind of touchstone for that. Um, you mentioned lots of cultural representations of the relations between fathers and daughters. Your book, you talk about some of the best known, King Lear, for example. But I'm wondering whether one can write about fathers and daughters in, and I use this word carefully because you're probably going to tell me that the word is meaningless or worse than meaningless in a normal way. Uh, earlier this week, I did a show with a young American novelist, Alison Fairbrother. She, uh, you probably don't work. She has a new book out, a book called The Catch. Um, and it's a book about um, her relationship. Uh, it's, it's a fiction, but I think it's built in some ways on um, her relationship with her father, of a, of a girl's relationship with a, a, with a quite imperfect father. But there's nothing Freudian. There doesn't seem anything sexual about it. Um, when people say, and I'm sure they say it to you all the time, well, I have normal relations with my daughter. Maybe daddy issues has some relevance, but, but I could have a normal relationship with my daughter. And girls will say, well, I have a normal relationship with my father. Is that just um, a screen, Catherine? No, I mean, I think, I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say anything about individual people's relationships to their fathers because, you know, what would I know about their relationships to their fathers? Or, or you know, I think it's very hard to understand other people's relationships within their family and also hard to understand one's own relationships in one's own family. You know, to see that clearly is kind of difficult to do. But um, but I guess in the book, what I was trying to do was, you know, was draw out some threads in the way that we talk about fathers and daughters and you know, one of the things that really fascinated me is how often we see representations of fathers and daughters where it's taken as a kind of given, I mean, as a comedic given some of the time. So it's the premise for various, you know, comedies like Meet the Parents and The Father of the Bride and films like that. But it nonetheless is a given that the father will be very jealous of um, his daughter's boyfriends. Like, jealous slash protective so you know a lot of a lot of i know what men are like and he's just after one thing and and i you know you, I, you your innocence must not be tarnished sort of thing so the language of protection being used partly you know partly out of care and love and the desire to protect a daughter which i can well imagine but also as a way to manage a, a kind of jealousy that i think culturally we really um we really take for granted and, and I'm not saying that that's not normal or it's not okay or it's not appropriate because, you know, if it it's just, you know, one of those one of those phenomena of family life and of the entanglement of, of, of different kinds of relationships. But the way in which we normalize fathers being kind of aggressive towards their daughter's boyfriends and the way we normalize um, that, that, 
that daughters should perhaps just kind of go along with this or be um, fondly fondly resigned to this. I think that's really interesting because what I think it shows is that we are actually resigned in some way to women not having their own sexual agency or autonomy. So these stories tend to be primarily about the fathers and their relationships to the men, where the girls, the daughters, come in just as sort of props in a way. You know, the question of the daughter's own sexuality, her own desire, is not in the picture. And, you know, that may be partly to do with, like, the history of who gets to make films in Hollywood, etc. But, you know, this constant reinscription of this dynamic is not a representation of an emerging girl's sexuality and how she might feel about her boyfriend or her father or whatever. So, so why don't we have more of those accounts? You know, it's, it's partly a sort of fixation on female sexuality as always seen through the lens of male patriarchal ownership of that sexuality. And that's what troubles me. Um, in, do, you, do you write about your own father and daddy issues, Catherine? No, I don't. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, as with any writing, it's it's profoundly shaped by my own um, my own life and my own feelings and my own experiences. And, you know, I think one of the things I wanted to do with the book was was to kind of lean in to my own ambivalence and my own, you know, complex feelings about my father and how he might relate to, you know, some of these insidious, you know, patriarchal currents in the culture, you know, un unwittingly or, you know, or wittingly, I don't know, um, that I think no, no father can escape. I mean, I think anyone who becomes a father is going to be deeply enmeshed in these na narratives about fatherhood that, you know, can be very lovely and about protection and devotion to daughters, but that, that come very, very linked to narratives about control and ownership. And I think every father has a responsibility to to try to confront that and, and think that through. And, you know, that was something that I I wanted to explore, obviously from a wellspring of, you know, my own life as a, as a woman with a father and, you know, living in, in the world that we live in, but I wanted to really do it through through texts and kind of cultural forms because that, that was where I could see it so much around me in the culture. Yeah, I, I mentioned earlier, you, you're well known for a book, Unmastered, a book on desire. Um, most difficult to tell, um, and this book uh, made your name in many ways. Um, you put your own stuff on the page, according to the Guardian. Do you think it's more daring, in a way, to put, say, to put your own relations with your parents, mother, father, and books like that, I guess, on the line rather than ones on Texo, or are they all dangerous in their own way? I think I think that writing in the first person in that way, you know, and inevitably writing about oneself, one writes about other people, whether one does it explicitly or not. I think any writing like that is risky and it's complicated and it can be, um, you know, it can feel very fraught and exciting and, and difficult. But I do think, I mean, what you're sort of suggesting in that question is that there is something different about writing about family and writing about parents because... You know, your family are, are what made you. <laughs> you know, none of us would be here if somebody hadn't made us. Um, mm. And you know, 
regardless of whether that's your biological family or or, or not, you know, your um, the, the conditions of your being able to speak at all or write a book are profoundly linked to your having been brought into the world in some way and nurtured and cared for and fed and loved in some way, you know, even if that love has been erratic or, or, or complicated. So, you know, some of those questions of loyalty, I mean, I remember, I think it might have been the writer, was it Michael Cunningham, who said something like, you know, in order to be a writer, you have to write as if your parents are dead. That may be a, a mangled quote, but, you know, something like that. And there is something true to that. But that is very difficult to do, in fact, whether your parents are alive or not, because you owe you owe your life and the, the possibility of your having learned to speak <laughs> to somebody who cared for you and who looked after you. Um, and I do think there is something that feels treacherous and disloyal um, and, and very painful about doing that. And, and you know, that I think there are writers who do write about their, their parents, often after their parents have died, because it is so fraught to do it when they're alive. I don't honestly know if I would write about my parents um, directly, you know, whether, whether they were still alive or, or not. But um, I think it does have, a, it has a, a very profound set of existential vibrations to it in a way that, you know, if you're writing about your sex life or your people that you have chosen in some way, it's different. It just is different. Yeah, it's probably different from uh, maybe the reason that um, Alison was able to write such a fine novel was it was a novel rather than nothing. she didn't write a book about her father uh, and, and they weren't just the same thing. Um, so let's say, right, let's say daddy issues do permeate one way or the other psychologically, psychoanalytically, all relations or most relations between fathers and daughters, and we need to try and fix it. What are we supposed to do, Catherine? Um, you know, this including myself, our fathers with daughters, and a lot of people are going to be watching this and think, yeah, maybe she's right, but I, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. I can't go back to the beginning. We did a show uh, with a, a, an American writer, Kimberly Wolf, recently, ironically, I didn't choose this photo, the, the Dykeman photo was chosen. Uh, it's about how fathers need to talk to their daughters. It was based on Kimberly Wolf's book, uh, Talk to Her, A Dad's Essential Guide to Raising Healthy, Confident, and Capable Daughters. I'm sure Wolf would be in agreement with you about independent women I'm not sure she would necessarily share some of your observations between fathers and daughters. What advice would you, as someone who's given a lot of thought to this, has just written a book about daddy, what advice would you give both to fathers and daughters about building better relations? I think that one of one of the key things that I actually think we all have to do, you know, not just not just fathers or, or daughters precisely because I do think it is so much part of the culture, but is to think about how we, um, how we approach emerging female sexuality. I think that, you know, the, the figure of the girl becoming the woman, the girl kind of discovering sexuality is so difficult and frightening for us, partly because we know that there is so much sexual violence and sexual abuse and, you know, just, terrible things that girls experience early on and throughout their kind of developing sexual lives, which means that we are quite rightly protective of daughters. We're protective of young girls as they emerge 
intersexuality. And, and that we're right to be afraid and careful and, you know, to try to, to manage the dangers for young girls. But what I think we really all have to be so careful of is when that desire to protect and that desire also to, to, to educate and to try to prevent the violence and harassment that she will encounter, when that um, turns into a desire to control or turns into a kind of a fear of the daughter's entry into the sexual realm that then gets turned into a kind of a horror, a disgust, um, a, a shaming, a, a kind of a perception of female sexuality itself as something kind of horrifying that, that we can't survive, you know, that perhaps the father can't psychologically survive very easily, his daughter growing up, um, but that none of us can cope with very well because we are afraid because we know what the dangers are. And that I think is this really, such a tightrope to walk because I think we do have to take incredibly seriously the difficulties that sexuality can present for girls but we have to try to do that without um, controlling and shaming girls and young women's sexual curiosity and their desire for exploration and adventure that they have the right to have. You know, girls have the right to explore their sexuality and to take risks. So how can we create a culture where that is safer for them and where also we don't project outwards a kind of horror at that sexuality and place it in the girl or the woman who then we want to punish with things, for instance, like you know, decreasing access to abortion. So I think- Yeah, thinking about, um, going back to the beginning about if, if girls do indeed need to take risks in terms of their sexuality, certainly eliminating abortion and contraception is a catastrophe in terms of the realization of womanhood, yeah. uh, of allowing girls to become adults. Let's end. Um, let's end, uh, Catherine, on a slightly lighter note. You talked about props, uh, and perhaps the, the most prop-like relationship between father and daughter is the one between Donald Trump and his daughter Ivanka. He's joked quite publicly. I don't know. He was joking that. If it wasn't, if she wasn't his daughter, he would have been sexually interested in her. what you make of that. Certainly, been lots of controversy about uh, whether or not she threw him under the bus. And the, the recent January sixth uh, hearing, some people say did, some people, uh, some people say she did, some people say she didn't. Whether she was revolting, and I use that word carefully, against her. But it all brings me back. I mean, the, the great image of fathers and daughters, or how fathers and daughters has gone wrong in certainly in contemporary America, was when uh, Donald Trump walked to the um, that church during the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. Um, there's this terrible photo of him. And of course, Ivanka, his daughter, shows up in this incredibly, with this incredibly expensive handbag in which she was carrying the Bible. Uh, and she opens the bag for her father. He takes the Bible out. Everybody knows, of course, that he's anything but a Christian to, to read in front of the church against Black Lives Matter. Apparently this handbag now is it was a Max Mara handbag isn't worth very much. Freud or Freudian an analyst, I guess, would have made a lot of this. What do you make of Freud's uh, not Freud, that's a Freudian error. Uh, what do you make of 
Trump and a banker? Is this just Hollywood nonsense or is there something there for thinkers, theorists like yourself? And what's right? It seems to me that the Trump Ivanka, the Donald Trump Ivanka Trump relationship somehow captures everything that you are warning against in daddy issues on every front. Yeah, I, I have to say, I find that relationship so troubling and kind of painful even to, to look at or, you know, to read about um, because of, I mean, just the extraordinary sort of objectifying and sexualizing way in which he speaks about his own daughter that I I can't help but imagine must be incredibly strange for her. And I have, you know, very little sympathy for her and her politics and, you know, but... But I, I, I can't help feeling for the terrible position that he puts her in when he speaks like that about her and sometimes in interviews with her. Because, you know, she she is doing something very kind of uh, complex, I think, because she in some ways is very loyal to him. Um, but But there must be, there must be part of her that recoils from how he talks about her. And that question, you know, that we touched on a bit earlier about kind of loyalty, perhaps, or betrayal, or, you know, how does one relate to one's own father or and, and to the figure of the father in culture? And I think it's it's really interesting when you look at the daughters of people who have been accused of various things, or who or who are you know culturally maligned. And, and throughout Me Too, we've seen it. You know, we saw it with Trump, but also you know things to do with Michael Jackson, for instance. Um, his daughter has written some kind of very interesting, painful things about defending him and and Bill Cosby's daughters. You know, it's really, I mean, it's like that kind of joke, isn't it? That, you know, you can bitch about your own father or your own family, but if anyone else criticizes them, you get really upset. Like one's own private difficulties in the family are one's own. And it's very painful to have someone else kind of intervene. And when I look at, you know, Trump, I see... I mean, I see someone who is so profoundly misogynistic, I mean, to, to another level and sort of deep into his core in a very, very cruel way. And I see a daughter who, you know, has obviously imbibed a lot of his politics and is quite happy to, to go around, you know, doing terrible things. But I also see somebody who is a little bit caught in the headlights of how to navigate that question of loyalty to the father you know, just how do you speak in public about your own father, I think is is really, really complicated. And so much so that, you know, I, I find it kind of, I find it agonizing. Well, I, I fix, Catherine. I think we need, uh, I, I think I've heard Ivanka Trump often watches this show. Ivanka needs to read your book, Daddy Issues, Love and Hate in the Time of Patriarchy. So Ivanka, if you're watching, Catherine's book might help you in your complex relationship with your father, Donald Trump as well, I guess, although he might not be willing to read it. Congratulations on the book, Catherine. Um, what else should people be reading in addition to your your new book, Daddy Issues, uh, Love and Hate in the Time of Patriarchy to, and I use this word again carefully, celebrate days like Father's Day, probably Mother's Day too. Well, I wanted to mention a book that's... Um that's coming out this summer in the UK. And I actually don't quite know if it's coming out in the US yet. It's called Small Fires, an Epic in the Kitchen. And it's by um, a food writer called Rebecca May Johnson. 
and it's it's really beautiful and interesting and it's about um it's about recipes and she talks a lot about a tomato sauce recipe and she traces the kind of the translation of this recipe through lots of different food writers but it's about the idea of um it's, it's partly informed by the odyssey she she wrote a phd on a german translation of the odyssey and it is this beautiful kind of celebration of um, kitchens and the act of cooking um, that is also kind of an interrogation of what counts as knowledge. So is knowledge something that can reside in um, in a recipe, um, a recipe that's kind of distorted and changed over time? But it's also a really interesting kind of meditation on gender and our ideas about cooking and food. And there's this beautiful line where she says, the choice is not between burning down the kitchen or revisiting it in a nostalgic dream state. That is a false binary. It is bad faith to burn your grandmother's archive because she wasn't as free as you. And I found that really just so moving and, and, and kind of thought provoking in terms of how women are encouraged or discouraged from thinking about domesticity and the kind of pleasures of the domestic and how within, you know, a certain kind of strand of feminism perhaps we've been encouraged you know not to be not to take pleasure in in the things that that trapped our grandmothers but Rebecca Johnson in this book kind of argues that there's something really profoundly transformative and political about the act of you know these very small detailed acts of, of taking pleasure in the kitchen and feeding oneself and feeding others so it's an amazing kind of literary political food book it's it's like nothing else i've ever read actually and i i really hope it's coming out in the u.s so that so that u.s readers can well, do you know her yes i do a bit yeah well maybe you can introduce me we'll get her on the show yeah i will